0: This week on InfoSec Sync, Nick talks about the RSA conference. Google researchers shatter the SHA-1 hash. Netflix debuts Stethoscope, open security tool. We discuss a Cloudflare bug. Android apps and the vulnerabilities of connected cars. Qualified cybersecurity job candidates. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSec Sync. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 30th episode of the InfoSecSync
1: podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris.
0: And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSecSync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride
1: themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at victech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H hnet
0: And now, for Stories of the Week, ending February 24th, 2017. What, what up InfoSexSync fam? 30th episode. 30th
1: episode Here we everyone. Come. We've come far, but we have so much more to go. So much more to go. So let's get right into it. Let's You're get fresh to it. fresh from uh RSA, Nick. So give us the lowdown. What is it? Where is it? Why is it? So f- and, so um, for our uh, what our, our
0: listeners that don't know what RSA is. RSA is a big uh security Uh, conference in San Francisco that they have annually every year um, started in 1993. So I believe this is the 24th year uh, they've had it. And I believe this is the biggest year. Um, So when the final numbers came in um, last week, uh, it was about more than 43,000 people showed up in total. That's a lot of people in one area. But it wasn't really one area. It's actually three convention centers and and one hotel not to mention all the uh the split outs for companies renting uh, meeting spaces in hotels and um ballrooms and things like that so of course this included a lot of uh security experts media was there uh vendors were there um they were about 15 keynote presentations and get this Matt, there were more than 700 speakers across 500 plus sessions.
1: Wow, how do you even keep up with that?
0: Uh, I don't know. I guess they got those numbers directly from RSA as they were registering. But here's the big thing, you know, so... No, hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you have a lot of Starbucks? Uh, actually, I, I, I only had Starbucks one time, and here, here's the funny thing about the Starbucks there. So right outside of Moscone Center, there are two Starbucks, both across the street from each other, and you try to get in one of those <laughs> during this RSA event. You're lucky. So during the entire event, there was coffee everywhere, like in all the sessions and all, all the uh, ballrooms. So that's where I was getting uh, most of my coffee from. I think I made it into uh, Starbucks just once. Uh, a couple times I just walked out. <laughs> it it's was a so hot bad. commodity,
1: man. So what I'm thinking is um, Starbucks on a Roomba. Mm-hmm like a Roomba style Starbucks that rolls around. Oh. And it's connected up internet of things. You know. Well, I think that'd be pretty cool. I'd Maybe
0: Until they get hacked,
1: right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, but you're at a security conference like
0: <laughs> Yeah. You know,
1: you got to live on the wild side a little bit. Connect to some networks, do some things you normally wouldn't do as far as um Internet security is concerned and see what happens.
0: So, so you know, Matt, I, I don't know if you're watching the news um, uh, lately this week, but there were some articles that came out. There were a lot of uh, hotspots that were e- malicious, either malicious or people just put them out there to see how many, quote, security experts would connect to them. And I don't have the numbers, but of course, people connected to them. I saw them out there, but I I kept um my wireless and my Bluetooth off and my privacy as well. So I I didn't you know use it at all.
1: Oh, you mean your location
0: settings? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: That's what's up, man. Well, at least um yeah you're you're probably safe then.
0: Yeah. So um, so the north and south of Moscone centers at, at the bottom is where they have um, all the vendors so there were more than 500 550 companies on the Expo floors at, at the same time so going through there was wild and crazy because there was so much so much to see so many gadgets to play with um, everyone you know wanted to scan your your badge of course so they can send so... you an email.
1: So, we'll get to that in a second because you did some interviews with some of the vendors. Right. And one in particular was um preventing ad hoc USB devices from being connected within enterprise environments. Correct. But so the Ransomware Summit, right? Mhm. Let's talk about that and then we'll get into the gist of like talking to some of the speakers and stuff, but what's what's the deal with this Ransomware Summit?
0: So, uh I was really excited to go to this because it was the first ever ransomware summit. Um, it was hosted by a CISO from Data Gravity. His name is Andrew Hay, and he got all these experts together to speak on the topic in a full day summit. And so, a lot of the speakers talked about ransomware implications across like policy, uh, technical stuff, compliance, financial response. And some of the speakers even discuss their innovative researches that they did in, independently, um, present case studies that they have, um, response and recovery to ransomware, and exploring and combating ransomware and debate if you should pay even pay the ransom. So that's good. That it was a cool thing to hear about how somebody, how some companies were were uh, responding to the malware how they did it, if they paid it, or if they did it. So a lot of the people said it's nothing more than monetized malware. But it is a big issue for healthcare, and mainly because in healthcare, um, data is very critical and has high availability, so it's always got to be there. Um, We've heard uh, ransomware cases in the past where they've hit hospitals, but um, I'm not sure of the current... uh, The current highest price for a hospital last last time i heard a hospital was really low price so i don't know where those attackers had come from do you remember that
1: no i don't remember but um you know ransomware is a problem across all enterprise environments oh yeah so that was cool that you guys got to get to get everybody in the same room and i'm sure people had really interesting viewpoints on how they would handle it within their particular enterprise environment. Mm-hmm. Um So, pretty cool. Um let's see. So, did you get to sit in some of the talks? I did. So, is there anything like in particular that you found interesting that you want to share with our listeners?
0: Sure. I I, I- actually the the first talk uh was uh, really a good one it was with um i think i believe four individuals one of them was uh a guy from DHS um a guy na- named uh gal uh spencer from ce uh security outliers um he was very colorful and, and and funny um and uh i think one of the guys was uh the stanford sizo uh, mike michael duff i believe his name was and the DHS guy, I forget his name, Neil Neil something, but um, Neil had said uh, DHS tracks about 300 ransomware activities per year, and not all of them are successful. And most of them, of course, are on end user workstations. And of course, you know it's it's phishing attempts, um, probably um, PDFs, um, people clicking on uh, malicious Word documents and things like that.
1: Wow. Interesting. So, and then there was, um, there was another vendor that you went to that had the self healing apps as well. I wonder if that could be applied to the ransomware problem. I guess not. That's more just malicious, Yeah, that's
0: that's I I believe that's more malicious uh, insiders or people wanting to take stuff off their computer and the (laughs) the endpoint puts it back on right away because it's not it's not supposed to come off.
1: Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I did. um, The videos are up on our YouTube, actually. Um and you got to try out your new mic on the iPhone, which worked very well.
0: Yeah, the uh, the Shure MV88 plugs right into the the bottom of the iPhone, and it's just like uh, using a professional microphone. The audio was great. Um, I synced it up with the video. I thought that was one of the one of the cool things of that I got to do.
1: So I guess you were there for what five days, right? So, can you give us an overview, like, each day, some, um, like, I know you were looking at some stats from some reports, and, like, you guys went over ransomware, and a whole bunch of cool stuff. Can you just, like, sum it up, maybe, in a five-minute overview of what you saw over the four or five days?
0: Sure. I got to pause here, because I got to bring this thing up.
1: Oh, that's fine. So... We have some cool stuff that we're going to talk about here on the show. Um, Pretty much, we're going to cover a Netflix tool that was released, which is pretty cool, um, Stethoscope. And we also have more fun about Google breaking um, SHA-1. And then, let's see, we're also going to talk about an ISACA report that was released that is basically saying um, some claims about fewer than one-fourth of cybersecurity job candidates are qualified. So we're going to go over some of those stats as well, which should complement some of the stuff that you saw in RSA. You met some of the ISACA folks. You met people from all around. Everybody's there, right?
0: Everyone's there. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the things that I... That I went to, I was all over the place because, you know, of course, I had to um, talk to people and interview speakers and things like that. So you re- you register for some things and then some things you can't even go to that you registered because you saw something cool or you were in the middle of talking to somebody. But, of course, I went to the Ransomware Summit. Um, I went to – that was the whole day uh, for Monday, and um, we'll get more into that. I, I did a, a lessons learned from CISOs and directors briefing the board. Um, uh, Client-side technology to billions of users, uh, how to deliver that securely. Uh, attended um, a virtual and software-defined security architecture workshop, which was really cool. Uh, Wednesday was uh, kind of a short day for me. Um, how can CISOs obtain pertinent information in the real world? And of course, the hacking exposed. This was one of the cool things: real-world trade craft of bears, pandas, and kittens. This was put on by CrowdStrike, and um, it, they sort of did a, an Oscar, an Oscar thing of which country <laughs> country wins for for the best uh, 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 hacking, ransomware, whatever, what have you, you know. And um, the last day I was there, uh, the finance sector encountering cyber threats lessons from the front line so there were uh some banks some people from interpol uh were there and uh managing cyber risk unlocking the mystery of the boardroom of course another uh, management topic um so i could bring back to uh the company i currently work for and my uh, position as director of it security uh so bringing those things back uh to talk about uh, not only here on the show but as as well to my clients and and things like that. So let me awesome. let me tell you about um more of this ransomware stuff, right? So so I was talking about Gal, he's the CEO of Security Outliers. So based on his clients that he currently has and he's helped in the past, they're attacking their backup infrastructure. So you would, you would think that they're trying to lock down the computer you're on and everything like that. Well, the first thing they're going to go to, they're going to get in, but they want to go to your backup first because that's what you're going to go to. It, well,
1: that's what you're going to pay for.
0: Right. So they want to go to your backup, encrypt that, lock it, and then come back forward and lock everything else. Wow. So he's saying your DRBCP, of course, your disaster recovery business continuity plan should include testing your backup. In addition to your power, you know, engineer it away, get cold storage offline backups is what he's saying. So physically do your backup, plug out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so do your backup and then either those disks or that array, Mm -hmm. take it offline.
0: Absolutely. And and of course, offline and away from from where it is, you know, take it out, out of the building.
1: Okay. So like um iron mountain or something right like have them take it put it somewhere and whenever you need it you can call it you know call it up yeah okay cool
0: um another another statistic gal had was um in 2016 one billion dollars were paid to cryptocurrency thieves oh wow yeah that's a lot that's a ton of money so basically, how, is, how compartmented is your network? That's the win, you know. You got to compartment it and 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 lock it down. You know, your your backup infrastructure. Make sure that it's offline. Another question. Okay. Another question. Um, they were asked, do you pay the ransom, and if so, when is the right time to pay the ransom? And one of the one of the things is, in addition to the ransom their costs involved with that and those costs are security experts coming in so companies have to think okay they want me to pay $10,000 but in addition I'm going to need security people to come in as well okay so for uh one of the first answers was yes <laughs> if you're not able to reconstitute in the time frame you need yes obviously you want to avoid the situation um The DHS guy, Neil, said, uh, from a government perspective, they don't pay. At the end of the day, it becomes a risk decision. Um, Paying a ransom isn't a guarantee that you'll get your data back, which is always, you know, always on your mind because you're paying a crook, right? How am I going to know you're going to give me my data back if I give you $10,000? Right. They made You're just Yeah, they may demand more money. That's like a, oh yeah, there's no honor there's no honor
1: amongst <laughs> thieves. No honor right?
0: amongst thieves. So they may demand more money because um paying that ransom encourages the business model all over, you know? So they they hear their buddies saying, Hey, yeah, we we got paid for this, let let's do it this way. And one way to discourage it they say is just to stop paying. Okay. Um again gal was talking about about the same thing he said they're a business and just like any business you can negotiate right he said ask for time ask for uh, some discounts you know maybe hey I I can't get you that money today you know what if I give you I could put a little bit on it you know (laughs) what if I give you like I don't know what half of the amount you know tomorrow Um, while you're doing that you should be checking out your backups you know, to see if you if you can recover them, or you're bringing security people in w- while uh, you're using this stall tactic, and then did anybody give any horror stories? Um, uh, not that I can not that I can recall, but there's a lot of ransomware going on, and it's only going to get worse this year. It's 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 the big thing they were saying.
1: Okay, all right, that makes sense. Did they um? Did they speak about any other types of malware or anything like
0: that? Different types of malware? Um, No, basically no.
1: Okay. So, let's see. You spoke to um, Dr. Neil Jenkins, right? Mm -hmm. So... They gave an example of, like, a um, in a hotel or something like that. So, can you elaborate on that a little more?
0: So, this was in response to him him being asked um, about uh, if if it's going to stop or not, and basically his response was, "It's not going to stop. It's going to continue to be effective until um, security people can get their best practices and their cyber hygiene." up to par and one of the he said one of the things that, that worries security people especially from a critical infrastructure perspective is the use of ransomware not to lock down data but to lock down actual operational procedures so what he means by that is, like, uh, take the, uh, the, Aus- the Austrian Hotel as an example, uh, uh, recently, a couple months ago, where they locked down the use of all key locks on the doors so no one could get into the doors. They prevented the actual operation of the hotel. So take that further uh, to the use of ransomware-type activity to lock down a control system so that, let's say, um, a water utility can't actually do the job it needs to do. So this is a worry that's going to be the next step from a critical infrastructure view.
1: So Shodan Safari, can you elaborate on that hashtag and
0: what the significance of that is? Yeah, so uh, Gal was talking about Shodan Safari. Um, He said it's a hilarious and terrifying hashtag. It's what people are are using on Twitter to show uh, what is vulnerable on the Internet of Things. So they'll do a they'll do a uh a search on Shodan for I don't know a certain type of uh water pipes or electric system or or something that's really critical to somebody or to some company and they'll post that it it's vulnerable and 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 what's wrong with it. So if you do that hashtag Shodan Shodan safari, you'll see what he's talking about there.
1: Okay, and then so to sum it up with ransomware um what what do you i mean like cfos and like with bitcoin with a different type of currency that they're not used to Mm -hmm. can you elaborate like with some closing points on what you learned about ransomware
0: yeah so of course a lot of the ransomware um is paid by bitcoin because it's untraceable and uh one of the uh speakers with uh sentinel one i think he's the ceo jeremiah grossman He's saying that uh, right now, because of the rising uh, ransom demands, CFOs and their law firms, they have to learn to transact in Bitcoin. It's not going to be an option anymore. And that some companies right now are having their law firms, like a retainer, store their Bitcoins for them in case they need to be used. Okay. And also... Um, he did some. Uh, we're talking about Jeremiah Grossman again with Sentinel One. He did some our research and found out that a million dollars has already been paid for to get uh, for for ransomware to get their data back. Wow. Okay. Cool. So that's a ton, ton, ton of money, and and it's, you know, it's it's so easy uh, to do this because you don't have to go anywhere, you know, and a lot of these um, a lot of these people are in, uh, difficult places for the U S to get They're in other countries that we should not name. All they have to do is, uh, get something on the internet, weaponize it, uh, learn to do it better. Um, hook, hook up with some more, uh, ran, uh, ransomware slash malware authors and, and they're off to the races. Wow.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. So let's shift into the security news.
0: How about we take a break and come right back? We can do that. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting life cycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and based their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at victech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.
1: And we're back. What's up, guys? So we're going to jump into our um, security stories of the week and we're going to start with some breaking news. What right? what happened this week, Matt? So, um Google researchers shatter the SHA-1 hash. What? Yep. So a collision attack by researchers at CWI Institute and Google underscores the need to retire SHA-1. So the aging cryptographic hash function SHA-1, which is secure hashing algorithm one, has suffered what some experts consider as the final blow today, as researchers from Google and the CWI Institute revealed that they had found a practical way to break SHA-1. So SHA-1 has long been considered obsolete. I mean, we don't, We don't use it. We use SHA-2 or SHA-3, but most major browser vendors plan to halt accepting SHA-1-based certificates this year due to its relatively weaker crypto scheme that the newer SHA-2 and SHA-3 standards um, kind of improve and have a little bit better protections. So Google and CWI engineer a collision attack against SHA-1, demonstrating two PDF files with the same SHA-1 hash and different content as a proof of concept of their findings. So, and I quote, For the tech community, our findings emphasize the necessity of sunsetting SHA-1 usage. Google has advocated the deprecation of SHA-1 for many years, particularly when it comes to signing TLS certificates. As early as 2014, the Chrome team announced that they would gradually phase out SHA-1. Remember us covering that story? Yeah. yep. Yeah. So, and then they also were trying to migrate the people that don't know how to upgrade to SHA-2. But we we covered that. I think it was like episode 25 or 26. Right. But either way, I quote, we hope our practical attack on SHA-1 will cement that the protocol should no longer be considered secure. End quote. Google said in a blog post today. And I quote, we hope that our practical attacks against SHA-1 will finally convince the industry that it is urgent to move to safer alternatives such as SHA-256. End quote. So. I mean,
0: it, it is much more secure.
1: It is, um, you know, but here's, so here's the big issue, right? Big issue is the older um, systems that are using SHA-1. Oh, yeah, the
0: legacy systems. How do you port those over?
1: Right, and that was the big issue when we covered it. It was a lot of critical infrastructure and um, organizations that have Uh, systems that are connected to the internet using certificates that don't necessarily have the compute power to, um, kind of upgrade the, uh, crypto algorithm that's used on there. So very interesting. And I think we pretty much surmise or surmise that, you know, we were rolling in the right direction as far as people migrating over, but we weren't exactly there yet. And I think we basically came to the conclusion that it's going to require something to happen for people to take it serious, whether this is that thing that's left up to interpretation, because if I was a a business owner, not me personally, I mean, I would change over immediately, but if you have a business owner that is like, hey, at the end of the day, this doesn't really affect my business. I own a water plant and I have my PLCs that control, you know, the water flow to these counties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't really need to upgrade my certs; They're good enough. I'm going to have to revamp the apps that the engineers use. I'm going to have to revamp the apps that I have, you know, that that the utility companies use to monitor usage so, it's going to require a lot of development money that I don't have right now, and I'm just going to put off migrating.
0: And put it off and put it off until something happens.
1: Right. So, whatever that thing is, we don't want to happen. It could, be, it could, it could, it affect, could be
0: ransomware.
1: <laughs> I mean, it could be. I mean, if they get on the device and start um, encrypting the partitions that are on there, right? Mm-hmm. And lock lock them out of being able to use the file system to where they have to completely, um, you know, replace that system, that is definitely going to be very disruptive to operations. And do you really think they're doing backups and recoveries in that type of environment?
0: Not if they're... Not even if they're worried about that, so no.
1: Yeah, so... It is pretty interesting, and we'll just have to track it and see where it goes.
0: Cool. All right, so our our next story, Netflix debuts Stethoscope, an open-source security tool. Uh, entertain, entertainment giant offers open-source app for security. So they've released a new web application called Stethoscope, designed to tackle security issues with mobile and desktop devices. Netflix developed a tool for its own users – Uh, They're offering the code on GitHub. So Stethoscope is based on Python. It gathers device details and provides the user uh, with recommendations on how to secure their systems. Uh, Stethoscope supports Landesk for Windows, Jamf for Macs, and Google MDM for mobile devices. It's all about educating users and empowering them to secure their devices, is what Netflix is saying. By providing personalized, actionable information and not relying on automatic content, Stethoscope respects people's time, attention, and autonomy while improving their company's security outcomes. If you have similar values in your organization, Netflix encourages you to give Stethoscope a try.
1: So I'm looking at Stethoscope Stethoscope. 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 (laughs) on Netflix right now and they track the following device configuration which they refer to as practices in the app disk encryption, firewall, automatic updates, up-to-date OS software, screen lock, not jailbroken rooted, and software security stack like carbon black. So each practice is given a rating that determines how important it is. The more important practices will sort to the top with critical practices highlighted in red and collected in a top banner. So, it's powered by Python backend with a React front-end, and the web application doesn't have its own data store, but directly queries various data sources for device information, then merges that data for the display. Hmm. And... All right. So, in addition to device status, Stethoscope provides an interface for viewing and responding to notifications. For instance, if you have a system that tracks suspicious application processes or application accesses, you could present a notification and it has like a picture on their blog um, that pops up and it says user at example.com sign into example app on Monday, January 2nd. You know, one week ago was this you. And it says we recommend that you only use these alerts when there is an action for somebody to take. Alerts without corresponding actions are often confusing and counterproductive. And for being mobile-friendly, Stethoscope user interface is responsive, so it's easy to use on mobile devices. It's important for notifications, which should be easy for people to address even if they are not at their desk. And so you pretty much just pull it down from GitHub, and you can get a feel for it, and you can run the front end with sample data with a single command. They also have a Docker Compose configuration for for running the full app. Cool. Really cool stuff. So this looks like compliance and you know um governance and basically having a handle on what the heck is going on within your enterprise environment cool cool and it's a user focused security approach so wow so it is a web app that collects information for the given user's device and gives them clear and specific recommendations for securing their systems so this is almost like not a flu shot but a checkup for your own device like if I wanted to see if my own device was compliant I could use this so really cool maybe we could um, spin this thing up in um, in our, our lab and see See if it actually see how it works and
0: see if it'll become a part of Caesar.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> the Consumer Electronic Security Assertion Rating. Correct. There we we'll go. We'll give it a
0: Caesar rating.
1: We'll give it a Caesar rating. I like that. All right, so let's jump in the next story. So a serious cloud fair blah, blah, a serious cloudflare bug exposed a number of. Um, A large number of quantity of secret customer data. So the service is used by 5.5 million websites, and it may have leaked passwords and authentication tokens. So Cloudflare, which is a service that helps um, optimize the security and performance of more than 5.5 million websites, warned customers today that a recently fixed software bug exposed a range of sensitive information that could have included passwords, cookies, tokens, which is used to authenticate users. So a combination of factors made the bug particularly severe. First, the leakage may have been active since September 22nd, nearly five months before it was discovered. Although the greatest period of impact was from February 13th and February 18th, second, some of the highly sensitive data that was leaked was cached by Google and other search engines. The result was that, for the entire time the bug was active, hackers had the ability to access the data in real time by making web requests to affected websites, and to access some of the leaked data later by crafting queries on search engines. Wow, not good. So, and I quote, The bug was serious because the leaked memory could contain private information, and because it had been cached by search engines, Cloudflare CTO John Graham Cumming wrote in a blog post published Thursday which is today. And I quote, we are disclosing this problem now as we are satisfied that search engine caches have now been cleared of sensitive information. We have also not discovered any evidence of malicious exploits of the bug or other reports of its existence. So the leakage was a result of a bug in an HTML parser chain. Cloudflare uses to modify web pages as they pass through the services edge servers. The parser performs a variety of tasks, such as inserting Google Analytics tags, converting HTTP to links to the more secure HTTPS variety, obfuscating email addresses, and excluding parts of a page from malicious web bots. When the parser was used in combination with three Cloudflare features email obfuscation, server side, and automatic HTTPS rewrites, it caused Cloudflare Edge servers to leak pseudo-random memory contents a certain HTTP,
0: HTTP. Um,
1: responses. Wow,
0: okay. That's a so, good tactic. Quick re-
1: yeah. So, quick response. Within an hour of the bug coming to Cloudflare's attention early last Saturday morning, engineers had already disabled the email obfuscation, a measure that mostly plugged the memory leak. Mm-hmm. It took another six hours for Cloudflare to identify and fix the underlying bug in the HTML parser. The leak is vaguely reminiscent of the Heartbleed vulnerability that exposed password, secret encryption keys, and other sensitive memory contents residing in servers running a vulnerable version of OpenSSL crypto library. Mm -hmm. Unlike Heartbleed, however, the parser bug could be exploited only opportunistically against certain sites that use Cloudflare. It also didn't expose the transport layer security keys. The leak was spotted by Google security researcher Tavis Ormondi while he was working on a corpus distillation project. He and his colleagues then struggled to understand why the data was what the data was and why and what was exposing it. It became clear, and I quote, after a while we were looking at chunks of unsanitized and uninitialized memory interspersed with valid data, he wrote in a blog post that was also published Thursday. And he quotes the program that this uninitialized data was coming from just happened to have the data I wanted in memory at the time that solved the mystery. But some of the nearby memory had strings and objects that really seemed like they could be from a reverse proxy operated by Cloudflare, a major content delivery network service, end quote. Ormandy continued, a while later, we figured out how to reproduce a problem. It looked like that if an HTML page hosted behind Cloudflare had a specific combination of unbalanced tags, the proxy would intersperse pages of uninitialized memory into the output, kind of like Heartbleed, but Cloudflare specific and worse for reasons he will explain later. His working theory was that this was related to their scrape shield feature, which parses and obfuscates HTML. But because reverse proxies are shared between customers, it would affect all Cloudflare customers. Ugh. So they fetched a few used live samples and observed encryption keys, cookie passwords, chunks of posted, and even HTTPS requests for other Cloudflare hosted sites from other users. Once they understood what they were seeing and the implications, they immediately stopped and, clou- and contacted Cloudflare Security. The situation was unusual. PII was actively being downloaded by crawlers and users during normal usage, they just didn't understand what they were seeing. Seconds mattered here. Emails to support on a Friday evening were not going to cut it. And they don't have any Cloudflare contacts, so they le- reached out for an urgent contact on Twitter and quickly reached the right people. Oh,
0: that's cool. Yeah. Twitter's cool with that, so, okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Twitter's cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, after they explained the situation, Cloudflare quickly reproduced the problem told them they had convened an incident that had a initial mitigation in place within an hour. So they said, You definitely have the right people. We have killed the affected services. In an update published later, Armandie took issue with the post Cloudflare published. And he quotes, It contains excellent postmortem, but severely downplays the risk to customers, he wrote. Graham Cunning's, the Cloudflare CTO, has rooted out the possibility that secret keys for customers transport layer security certificates were exposed in the leaks. Password manager provider one password said that said it's none said that none of its data was exposed because it was encrypted in transit. Still, Graham Cunning and said end-user passwords, authentication cookies, OAuth tokens used to log into multiple website accounts, and encryption keys Cloudflare uses to protect server-to-server traffic were all at risk of being exposed. So even
0: though they were um, encrypted, they could still be grabbed and and gone through and, I guess, brute-forced or or whatever.
1: Right. So you can still get the encrypted data. So, Cloudflare researchers have identified 770 770 unique URIs that contain leaked memory and were cached by Google, Bing, Yahoo, or other search engines. The 770 unique URIs covered 161 unique domains. Graham Cummings said Thursday that the disclosures came only after the leaked data was fully purged with the help of the search engines. Google Cache, however, appeared to show data remained exposed by the bug as evidenced by links such as this one (laughs) and social media threads, including this one. And obviously we can't show you, but, um, a link to the article that we got this information from, you know, you could see it, but, um, yeah, not a good situation at all. Kind of goes back to the whole, um, cloud security, right? So there's multiple things that you want to ensure when you're using, a content delivery network. And one of those things is what one password did, right? So one passwords whole job in life is to protect passwords, right? So you use their service, you upload the passwords in the cloud service that stores it to you. And no matter where you're at, you can pull that password down and use it for that particular service, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they had encrypted it and not only that but it got encrypted again so it was encrypted two times which is pretty good but kind of going back to our ransomware discussion that we had if you have a if you're using a cloud service provider right and you remember how we said you never want to let a cloud service provider um kind of maintain your keys yes so this is kind of why right because if they have well i mean this is key leakage so it's a little bit different right because it was kind of discovered by a what was that heart bleed like or a what was it what did they make a reference to at the beginning it was heart bleed like yeah kind of heart bleed like but either way one password kind of showed that they did some um due diligence and kind of encrypted the data as well. So that was pretty good. But one thing to keep in mind when using a cloud service provider, it's it's never a bad idea to have encryption on the data that you're storing as well as to have it encrypted again by the cloud service provider and let them maintain that key. So it's almost like a safety deposit box, right? Mm -hmm. A safety deposit box, you have the key to it. It's inside the vault, but the bank has the key to the vault or the combination to the vault. So you kind of want to think of it that way. But either way, very interesting. Um, we don't see... I remember Salesforce back in the day? Like that pops to my mind with the whole Salesforce thing that went down. Cloudflare, we haven't seen a lot.
0: I think this is the ba- first uh, thing we've heard from them.
1: Right. So, you know, it's just one of those things. No vendor is immune from... Or cloud service provider is immune from something like this happening.
0: All right. But
1: anyways, on to the next story. But
0: we've, before that, Matt, we're going to take a break and come right back. It sounds good. VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation efforts. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. And we're back. On to our next story. So, What is it, Nick? So, Matt, this story was actually uh, done when uh, I was out at RSA. This is one of the things I did not get to go to because I was in um, another talk or running around, uh, r- just running around in general.
1: Doing doing the interviews. Yeah, doing
0: interviews and stuff. Um, in a presentation at this week's RSA Security Conference in San Francisco, researchers from Kaspersky Labs revealed more bad news for the Internet of Drivable Things connected cars. Malware researchers Victor Chev, Cheb- uh, Cheb- I believe, and Mikhail Kuzin examined seven Android apps for connected vehicles and found that the apps were ripe for malicious exploitation. Six of the applications had unencrypted user credentials, and all of them had little in the way of protection against reverse engineering or the insertion of malware into apps. The security vulnerabilities of connected cars have been a hot topic at security conferences for the past few years, particularly after researchers Charlie Miller and Chris Velasik demonstrated that they could control many of the functions of a Jeep Grand Cherokee, including its brakes and steering, Remotely through the vehicle's built-in cellular data connection, they have also been repeated demonstrations of vulnerabilities, and how the mobile applications from various connected vehicle services connected to vehicles, such as Sammy Camcar's demonstration of intercepting data from the mobile app for GM's OnStar. The vulnerabilities looked at by the Kaspersky researchers. Focus not on vehicle communication, but on the Android apps associated with the services and the potential for their credentials to be hijacked by malware if a car's owner's smartphone is compromised. So the two researchers wrote, theoretically, after stealing credentials, an evildoer, I like that term, an evildoer, will be able to gain control of the car. But this does not mean that the criminal is capable of simply driving off with it. The thing is, a key is needed for a car in order for it to start moving. Therefore, after accessing the inside of a car, car thieves use a programming unit to write a new key into the car's onboard system. Now, let us recall that almost all of the described apps allow for the doors to be unlocked that is, the activation of the car's alarm system. Thus, an evildoer can covertly and quickly perform all of the actions in order to steal a car without breaking or drilling anything. All seven of the applications allowed the user to remotely unlock their vehicle. Six made remote engine start possible, though whether it's possible for someone to drive off with a vehicle without having a key or RFID equipped key fob um, present, it's unclear. Two of the seven apps used encrypted user logins and passwords, making theft of credentials much easier. And none of the applications performed any sort of integrity check or detection of root permissions to the app's data and events, making it much easier for someone to create a, quote, evil version of the app to provide an avenue for attack. While malware versions of these apps would require getting a car owner to install them on their device in order to succeed, the researchers suggested that would be possible through a spear phishing attack warning the owner of a need to do an emergency app update other malware might be able to perform the installation. While no such malware has yet been reported, the researchers noted, contemporary Trojans are quite flexible. If one of these Trojans show a persistent ad today, which cannot be removed by the user himself, then tomorrow it can upload a configuration file from a car app to a command and control server at the request of criminals. The Trojan could also delete the configuration file and override it with a modified one. So that is some crazy car stuff, Matt.
1: Yeah, it is, and you know, this kinda goes back to the mentality, right? The mindset. So if you think of a car as just a car, you will not succeed as a security researcher engineer, right? The car now is just like a cell phone or a computer connects to the internet it can process data it's ripe for the taking as far as uh, from an attack surface standpoint and we have to make sure that we have the proper protections in place but i am glad that this kind of discussion is happening this exchange right um with these security researchers kind of saying that you know this could happen and we need to watch out and theoretically this is how it could play out because that allows the car manufacturers to then go in and fix it. Right. But Mm -hmm. hopefully the car manufacturers will take it seriously. And I say that because when I look at the kind of, um, executive staff of most of the big car companies, are we seeing a, I see like a, chief privacy well not really a chief privacy officer but uh, maybe you'll see it you're lucky if you see a cto right what about a cso who's looking out for the security of the systems the embedded systems within the cars
0: or at least some type of risk manager
1: right exactly so you know, until we see that, it's going to be kind of difficult to say, yeah, they're taking it serious right now. But it is what it is. It, dep- it all depends. It- yeah, this is obviously one way. Um, it-, it all depends, but typically it's very easy. And the reason why is because the standard that they use for the, the CAN bus is, it, it's pretty much once you get on the CAN bus, it's not like uh, TCP or UDP, right, or TCP IP. It's not at that level of sophistication. It's pretty much devices sitting on that network that when you send a string of one and zeros, right, to that device, it will execute. So a good example is, like, your your brakes, right? Now, well, actually a better example would be your steering. So electronic power steering. You have an electronic power steering rack that's on the vehicle, and you have a sensor that sits um, pretty much where the steering wheel, like right under the steering wheel. So there's no steering column going down to a steering rack now. Okay. Okay and there's a sensor that sits on there that provides a little bit of feedback so it feels like you know the real deal but once you get on the can bus you can then man in the middle from the sensor to the actual power steering rack and you can start to send signals to the power steering rack to turn the wheel when the user is not turning (laughs) the wheel
0: or or do it uh reverse right like you're turning right but the wheels are going left
1: Right. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do once you get on the CAN bus, but defense in depth, right? So you shouldn't just rely on the network security protections that are in place, i.e. if I have an infotainment system that's dual homed, right? One is kind of on the CAN bus so that I can control it through the steering wheel controls, like the, you know, volume up, volume down, mode select all that type of stuff. And then the other home of this device is on the internet. Right? It has a, a public IP address. So that's a problem. We gotta make sure that there are security protections and controls in place that prevent somebody from getting onto that device and then being able to pivot over to the CAN bus network. Which has been done in the past and it's been done time and time again And car manufacturers are getting better about it. But the thing is, I don't want you to just patch the infotainment system or whatever, right? The GPS or whatever. What I want you to do is kind of either talk with, you know, the National Highway State Transit Authority or the SAE, right? Um, They make standards for automobiles and figure out how you can overhaul CAN bus to have a level of confidentiality and integrity for the communications that are happening on that network.
0: Interesting. Very interesting.
1: Right. And it goes back to that whole issue of, yeah, you could encrypt the communications, but I mean, is it really necessary for you to have, um, certificates on a power steering rack sensor and, you know, or a steering sensor and a power steering rack, uh, motor. I mean, you know, we got to figure out what is the best handoff between usability and security, right? Because you can only... The thing is, if you make it more powerful, those devices more powerful, now they become more of a an attractive option for an attacker because now a car, not only can you get on there and do nefarious things, but there's some horsepower behind the devices that are on that network, right? But... It pretty much has to be a trade-off. But just patching software security on the device that is dual-homed isn't going to solve the problem. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And
0: and you know, Matt, we need qualified people to be doing that, right? Exactly. And I think that brings us to our next story.
1: Yes. So our next story is about the um, ISACA 2017 State of Cybersecurity and so um, ISACA is an organization. You met them out at RSA. We saw them at ISSA International. Um, great folks. But they basically have um, a series of training and certifications that they present. Um, also, they have a um, a membership as well, uh, membership following in a community. But um, they did a report. So they, in their report, they... Reported that fewer than one-fourth of cybersecurity job candidates are qualified for the job that, you know, they're trying to get into or the job that they're currently in. So the ISACA report finds that 55% of security jobs take three to six months to fill and under 25% of the candidates are qualified for the jobs they apply for. So sober, sobering security news on the cyber security hiring front, more than 20% of organizations get fewer than five applicants for an open security job, and more than half of all positions, 55%, take at least three months to fill with a qualified candidate. Of those that apply, fewer than 25% are actually qualified for the job, and um, it was released at RSA, so if you stop by, you probably saw some verbiage on this. So it won't surprise anyone in IT management to learn that it's extremely challenging to fill open jobs in the information security market, but ISACA's report on the state of the security hiring quali- kind of quantifies those challenges more starkly. So the source of the problem doesn't appear to be money, says Eddie Schwartz, an ISACA director and also EVP, the executive vice president of cyber services, and security vendor Dark Matter. Did you see them out at RSA? I
0: actually talked to Dark Matter and picked up a lot of their um, literature. I I think I got a shirt and some cool swag from them.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So they continue to see a lack of qualified candidates, even though companies are offering extremely competitive salaries, and that's higher than other IT jobs. So this report was generated from an email survey. So that was the instrument that they use to pulse the individuals that were, um, you know, part of this, right, as a, as a population. Mm-hmm. So, let's see. What we're going to see is continued departure from a bunch of letters after people's names and verifying that they have the skills needed. Referring to any acronyms like CISP and others... So, rather than just writing code and answering rudimentary security questions, InfoSec candidates can expect to be dropped into live-fire scenarios that reflect their levels of experience. So, if you're an apprentice, they'd be more rudimentary, but if you're expert, you're going to be asked to work in more advanced scenarios. Very interesting, right? So... In the last 20 years, many employers have taken the approach of bringing on a cybersecurity professional as a generalist, then encouraging him or her to add certifications and climb the ladder as their experience and knowledge grew, Schwartz says. Others tried to draw security talent from their organization's pool of software coders, but employers typically haven't done enough, shepherding of security talent and cultivating skills internally and training people to replace their bosses. More recently, the industry started in the direction of creating apprentices, journeymen, and masters of InfoSec. He points to ISACA's own CSX certification program as an example of the hierarchical progression. But clearly, the security talent nurturing equation needs a refresh. ISACA and employers have work to do with educators in their computer engineering and IT management programs. And employers need to start embracing how millennial and Gen Y professionals work and learn. They prefer just in time training and ratings like the ones in gaming systems kind of goes back to Caesar, right? right. (laughs) They're all about how they can continually gain knowledge and how they rank relative to their peers. So ISACA is starting to see corporations incentivize millennials to take part in team-based training. Um, for example, with one goal to improve their ratings, So, other key findings from the um, ISACA State of Cybersecurity Report is 32% of the respondents say it takes six or more months to fill security positions, only 13% report report receiving 20 or more applications for a security job, 13% of the respondents cite referrals or personal endorsements as the more important attribute for candidates. 12% Twelve percent certifications followed by formal education, which is ten percent, and specific training, which is nine percent.
0: Yeah, and this is something that that we see in here in this field all the time. There, there's not enough experienced people, and the only way for them to gain experience is to put them on the keyboard. And you know, companies have to start building their own ranges and 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 coming up with their their own training. The, so it's like a training exercise, yeah. right?
1: So. If I were to bring somebody in, I need to have an exercise that I can put them in to gauge their level of comfort, right, and their level of kind of deductive reasoning and problem solving. Correct. So it's not just the fact that you know, all right, you know. Yeah, it's
0: not going to be. It's not going to be right or wrong. It's just let's let's see what this person does. How are they going to go about this? Which which where it's, are they going to go?
1: It's like. Um, How are they going to solve this puzzle? Yeah, it's like uh, Star Trek right when he had the the live exercise
0: sure oh the oh yeah forget well
1: not live exercise but you remember when uh he cheated or whatever right because he but either way same type of deal right you put somebody in a situation and kind of figure out how they would react to that situation um a good example would be like if you're hiring somebody to be a manager of a security operations center or a um like a yeah a sock so you would put them in and you'd say okay you have analysts under you and they're giving you these reports you need to go to senior management and tell them this is what needs to happen based upon the information you're gathering and you're get well not gathering but you're receiving from the individuals that are working for you how would you handle this situation or if you had somebody who was a risk manager right per se and you can say, we just had a notification that, you know, one of our cloud service providers um, could have potentially leaked information. How do we handle that situation? Yeah, so
0: you're running a tabletop there or, a you know, a war game. So, yeah, sort of like the, the Kobayashi Maru from Star Trek. Yeah.
1: Right. So either
0: way. So cool stuff. That's the end of the show uh, for this week, folks. Um, what do we have coming up, Matt? So, um, we
1: have a um, live recording session coming up next week. So, it's going to be next Thursday. um, And it is going to be, for all of our Baltimore folks, um, it is going to be on the 2nd at um, 5.30 to 8.00. And it will be at Nottingham's, um, which is in Columbia, Maryland.
0: So, so everyone in the Baltimore area head to Nottingham's. We're going to be doing um, a live podcast. I think we're going to try to do, uh, uh, stream it live on YouTube. Yeah.
1: So may have, mm-hmm. it, and you may come out in person for that, right? Yeah, I might no, promises, I might come up but. for that.
0: I'm, you know, I'm trying to see if I, I I can get out of a few things, but we'll see how it goes. All right, cool. Well, um, that's pretty much all we have coming up. So
1: with that, thanks for staying in sync, sync with, with InfoSecSync. Infosec sync.
0: InfoSecSync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.